podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello everyone and welcome to the Friday show. I'm your host Mo Stewart, sitting in for the absent Neil who's off on his hollybobs across the States. But we have still got an absolute bumper room for you. I've got Tesla Simakulwa in front of me, I've got Jim Johnson in front of me and we've got Phil Blundell alongside. And to be honest, most of us have kind of been a little bit woozy in the heady fog of the transfer window. But it's important to remember that those things are only important because of the football being played on the pitch. And the fixture list has blessed us with some absolute crackers this week. So we're going to get stuck into those. I should tell you that we are recording this literally while the Champions League draw is happening. So that might be dripped into it as well. Uh, later on in the show, we've got Anna Wilson talking about Sheffield United against Everton. And we've got Neil from the Love of the Paul McGrath podcast to chat about Aston Villa versus Liverpool. But considering we've got Jim and Tezza here, there's only really one place to start, and that's Arsenal against Manchester United. And considering these two are probably still a little bit distracted by the draw, Phil, I'm going to come to you first. I was going to say, I feel like like a referee in the middle. <laughs> well, yeah, it? I wanted to put you to some good use before these two take over. I was so, on the verge to put my feet up and I would go at it, mate, but apparently we're going the opposite we're way. We're going... Misread that one, Hey, hey, it's a... <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna make some ch- small changes around here. Nothing too too drastic, but this is gonna be one of them. So, um, Phil, it's just it, nice to see a Liverpool fan putting his feet up during the Champions League draw. Oh, behave! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we thought this was gonna be kind. Of see you in like, March. Yeah, <laughs> the gloves are literally on right now. So, Phil, um, from the outside, uh, for me, it feels like an indication of where modern football is. That despite the fact that both Arsenal and Man United have won two out of three league games. It feels like the loser of this game could be sent into a bit of a meltdown. And I don't know whether that's coming from a media always juicy for a meltdown or whether it's maybe the fragility of the actual improvements that the fan base feel within the team. But does this strike you as a bit unfair or do you agree that whoever loses this is in a bit of trouble? I think it would be a bit unfair in Manchester United just on the grounds that it's an away game against the team that came second last season. Another product of it potentially being a crisis would be that they've also lost at Tottenham, who are not a bad side either. So you can, you know, they won the two home games that they'd be expected to win, lost two games that you could make an argument that is not unexpected. Obviously, they would want to have come out, come away from those two games with a minimum of two points, preferably four, ideally six. But you can still look at it and go, I can see, I can see how this is just acceptable. And if you lose those two games and you're 16 games into the season, it kind of you can kind of be all right with it but for arsenal to you know take one point from fulham and manchester united at home i think that would be a not a warning signs but they'd have to sort of be thinking hang on this is not a continuation of how last season finished but it might mentally feel like that in terms of you know there was an obvious drop off in terms of points per game after yeah. sort of after april after mid march april that kind of period and if you get in four games in and you you're on seven points with three home games that's when you can possibly start to maybe have doubts creep in. Yeah. And this is still early days. We have to stress this. I think there's a certain element of the fact that the hyperbole that comes around football generally tends to say that this stuff gets accelerated. But, Tez, I'll come to you on this first. The other thing we have to factor in is the fact that there is a break after this, the international break coming after this. And that really is a chance for every team to kind of take a breath see how those initial thoughts they had in pre-season have panned out, where they need to improve, can they improve. So how do you feel about the potential prospects of the result not going your way on Sunday? I think for United, it's it's almost like a free-for-all in the sense of, 
Arsenal, as, as Phil was saying, Arsenal have the expectations of being a, a top two, top three team this season. United um, would have entered the season with you know newfound inspiration and hope with some of the signings that they've made. And but I mean, very quickly we've had Mount injured, Luke Shaw's injured, Malassia's injured, Maino's injured, Hoyland's joined. He's not fit, so it's almost like the break is probably going to come at a good time to for Ten Hag to just assess and say, everyone, just calm down. We're only a couple of games in. We're already at a better stage now than we were last season. And look how last season finished. So I think from that point of view, I'd say it's not panic stations if United were not to win. But I think if we do pick up a point, I think it's like consolidate what, what's gone on in terms of the injuries, etc. And then we just try and kick on from after the break. So how would you assess the start? Because obviously, even in the two games that Man United were able to win against Wolves and Nottingham Forest, there were obviously, I think it's fair to say, issues, particularly going 2-0 down at home to Forest after five minutes. So, but as I mentioned, you have still won two of those three games. Um, you mentioned the fact that there are still a lot of injuries, so it's hard to say you've seen the real Man United as Ten Hag would want it. Particularly thinking about those injuries at the back, Varane, Shaw, how worried are you with the firepower that Arsenal have potentially that they could come out and really blast you? So it can it can go in two ways. Usually, usually when big teams have their full strength eleven and they go into a game with another opposition full strength eleven, they can cancel each other out. And sometimes when one team is missing some key players, it almost galvanizes some of the players that don't normally play. Whether that happens in this game and this weekend with the likes of Maguire, who well, actually will Maguire even come in? Potentially, Lindelof is probably the the one who's ahead of him. Lindelof and Martinez, isn't it? Lindelof mm. and Martinez, but then it depends whether we have a left back in at that time. So I'm thinking it's a good point. whether yeah. Lissandro has to then be that player, and then it causes more. Think he switched Delo over, or yeah, he did. He did switch Delo, which actually might help because obviously Saka's left yeah. footed coming inside, but. It's it's just one of them where I think I think United having injuries might be a blessing in disguise mm. because I think Ten Hag's plan A with Mount Casemiro and Bruno just first couple of games it just looked like underlying numbers were actually really good but in terms of the eye test it didn't really show and it's 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 a difficult one because from a manager and they're like a coach's and analyst point of view they're probably looking at it and thinking well. Actually, if we put that chance away and that chance away, the Tottenham game were 2 0 up after yeah. half an hour, or um, the Wolves game, again, there was chances where we were really sloppy in that game. Um, so I think, yeah, I think I think it will probably actually be a blessing in disguise mm. that United have a few injuries. Obviously, Varane's probably the key one because I think we can get away with the other ones. Varane, even though last season he was out, but Shaw was the deputy and he's out as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's going to be try. It'll be difficult. It also, it creates like it feels like the injuries have created a situation where Manchester United can say draws good, draws fine, and you don't have to sort of go looking for the win. Like you, you might if you had full strength side. I think Manchester United would have it within the sort of psychological side that win the game, send the yes. statement. Whereas now you can go, oh, okay, we've got these problems, we've got this adversity, we mm. can do this and we can go from there. Speaking yeah. of draws, uh, Man United so far have got Bayern Munich and FC Copenhagen. So one good, one bad. Balanced. And also in terms of live news, it appears that Sergio Regulon 
is coming over on loan from Spurs as opposed to Mark Cucurella. Uh Instant reaction thoughts? To be honest, it was like... Do you want to get punched or kicked? I don't think it was, <laughs> that's, how, that's how I took it. Um, <laughs> there was no real kind of standout left back that United could have um, approached, especially this late in the in the window. Funny enough, if Kieran Tierney didn't move, I think that's who United probably would have tried to sign and probably even on the permanent, but... Um, Regulon, yeah, I guess he'll do a job. He hasn't really impressed me that much, but I guess he'll be able to do what Ten Hag wants. He's just a body. I'm intrigued to know whether he's a punch or a kick, though. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe think about yeah, that. To be honest, to... <laughs> if I'm being honest, I'd probably prefer Regulon over Kukurella just because of I think Kukurella would have come in with already been a disappointment, massive signing in terms of price. For Chelsea and then to come to United and he hasn't really had the best of start. He hasn't even played this season really. Mm. He play, I know he played last night. That was probably That too. was a bit mad, wasn't it? And just a cup like, time. Yeah. Just exactly. in case. Yeah, just in case he moved. <laughs> like, <laughs> He's like, I know you might go to United, but we just do us a favour and cup time. Yeah. yeah, that was surreal. Maybe he knows that United aren't taking the league up the series this year. <laughs> so Jim, it's your turn. Um to do another live update. So far you've been drawn with Sevilla and PSV. Could have been a lot more dangerous, I think it's fair to say. Probably a couple of away days you might even enjoy. Yeah, well, who, who doesn't like an away day to Seville and uh, Holland? Yeah, PSV I mean? last season as well, actually, didn't you? We did play yes. PSV, yeah, yeah, um, in, the, uh, in the undercard, yes. yes. Um, so, in general, though, yeah. for Arsenal, mm-hmm. it's been a strange one, because I do think <clears> there was a point in the window where I felt like Arsenal had really done everything that they needed to do. They'd gone big. They got someone big and someone strong in every department of the team. And then almost immediately the injuries started to come in and started to weaken that. But for me, looking on the outside, it doesn't really seem like the injuries are the key problem. There seems to be a little bit of the, the chemistry, maybe even from last year, that seems to be missing. What do you what do you make of it? I think, Mo, you probably take the temperature of every Arsenal fan by doing what you do by inviting me on this show every month <laughs> because, because pretty much a month ago it was like oh we had the best window in the world we're amazing and then all of a sudden the ecosystem of the signings has been massively upset by the injury to Durian Timber now because Durian Timber looked looked so promising in terms of his versatility um, could play all across the back four and probably in midfield as well um, he, he looked great in uh, in the community shield and obviously in the you know in the 45 minutes up up and to and including his injury um, so that and then you, you 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 immediately then start scratching your head because what there's been a bit of a hangover I think I think Arsenal are experiencing the hangover that goes with pushing so hard and you know I'm not going to denigrate that that experience you know I didn't ever never thought we'd win it um and we 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 took them reasonably to the wire which is what anybody can hope to do um but there's a little bit of tinkering going on now because he's he's found himself with a with a certain embarrassment of riches and yet somehow remaining imbalanced in, in 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 terms of the squad because we don't know what's going on with Gabriel. I don't know whether there's been a fallout there with the manager or whether or not th- th- there's been an offer of, uh, of mega bucks from Saudi Arabia and that's unsettled the player. 
and that's you know shuddered down to the management team. So they said, well, I'm going to look somewhere else with what I'm going to do do here. Obviously, with Zinchenko being injured, this wedding he's got to the inverted fullback thing has meant that Partey has played at right back mm. um, as the inverted player. And there was no evidence of that at the end of the season that that was Last like game of the season, anything. He did it for one game. Well, he did it for a couple of games actually, yeah, Taz, because he did games. it against uh, Forest as well, yeah. and he was awful against Forest <laughs> in, that, in, that, in that position. But again, you mentioned Tierney. Mm. Tierney clearly couldn't get a look in, and I think that's really interesting because Tier- Tierney's gone somehow from hero to zero <laughs> in such a. Um, do you want to take a pause? There, so right? I was just seeing Newcastle's yeah, Champions League. Yeah, I just seen Newcastle's Champions League draw. Oh, cool. and who- PSG, Dortmund, Milan. Oh, well, I'm happy about that. That's, <laughs> that's good. That's good. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that Kieran Tierney didn't go to Newcastle as well. But but what, just getting back to Kieran Tierney, like this, this idea that he's clearly just not an Arteta player. Mm-hmm. But one of the big success stories of Arsenal last season, I think most people would agree, was Saka on, um, on the right with Ben White overlapping mm. right and because of this obsession with the inverted fullback mm. and putting Partey on the right hand side that hasn't been able to happen because Ben White's been playing inside he's clearly got his favourites so Saliba coming back has been a massive plus because he's you know for my money one of the best centre backs in Europe right now but with that and the signings they've made there's this wedding to this now this three one six formation where You've got White, Saliba, and a another, probably Tommy Asu with, with Timber being injured. He wants them to all look a little bit like centre-backs when they're defending, but then you've got six attacking players because he knows that everybody's going to get behind the ball, as was the case um, against Forest, as was the case against Fulham, um, as was the case against Palace until we got player, uh, player sent off and then that kind of switch, switched round. The one thing I would say as well, um, the first three games in any season right now, just feels like the phony war. And it's the phony war that's linked to squads not assembling the players that they want because the window takes everybody to the wire. That's the first thing. And Arsenal had done their business um, to a greater or lesser extent. But what that does lend itself to, and and this would be my kind of cautionary tale for anybody that that looks at the end of June when when, when the the fixtures, fixtures come out, if you've got three absolute killers, first three games, you shouldn't worry about it mm. because get them out of the way, mm-hmm. right? So if you're United mm-hmm. and you've got you've you already played Tottenham and uh, Arsenal away by the first um, international break, you are laughing mm. like Arsenal did two seasons ago when we got City and Chelsea yeah, yeah, yeah. and we, we we were bottom of we were bottom of the table. Yeah. I was totally zen about that because I knew we were embedding new players and I knew that basically. Nothing really happens until after the first international break. Now, in Arsenal's case, we were, we narrowly beat Forest, which when we should have beaten them really, really well. We narrowly beat Palace when we should have beaten them really, really well. We should have beaten Fulham, and Christ knows what happened there. And 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 now we find ourselves, as you said at the beginning, um, that whoever wins that game, right, puts. That's the very, very first big talking point because, and if it's, and if it does turn out to be United, and it could quite easily be, I don't know what's going to happen on Sunday because I, I, I just don't recognise this side at the moment. Yeah, I, I sort of, you know, think to myself, well, God, you know, that's going to look really bad when you've spent nearly two hundred million quid on players. Don't get me wrong, I'm, 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 Declan Rice has been good, yes. and he will get better, right? 
Um, I, I hear a lot of noise around Havertz, but I understand why we've signed Havertz because it's about tactical flexibility. So it's about having a number nine who can play with his back to goal and hold the ball up when we're looking to go long, mm-hmm. right? Um, but and that's such a waste of money. <laughs> Huge waste of money. Well, I, I'm not a Havertz fan, but I, I understand why Arteta will persist with Havertz because 65 million on a player you're going to want to allow him to be part of the project. You can't just give up after three, four games. You've got to give him 10, 15 games and see, like, it's not working, change it. Or it may turn out to be, like, a real coup. You never know. But I think I think that's part of the reasons why the system has changed because they need to get an extra player in the central zone so Havertz can play higher up, whereas Xhaka was good at dropping into that back five to make an extra body and then make those late runs. They don't want Havertz in the build-up. They want him to be making late runs. But the net winner in all of this, Taz, is Eddie Nketiah. Because I think Arteta's decided that with his injury record, amongst other things, he doesn't see Jesus after after a season as an out-and-out number nine. But what Jesus does do, and he's got a fantastic record doing it, is playing on either either flank. Mm -hmm. So... Um, and the experiment with Trossard, which admittedly went horribly wrong, um, playing him as the false nine on Saturday. Uh, you know, I like Leandro Trossard. I think he's a good player. But, you know, there's a bit of... St- you've got to stick him where you want him and kind of work him into that. I think this could be a, a, a breakout season for Enketia. I, I said to a friend yeah, last night, he's a United fan, we were talking about mm. this game, and he knows his football... And I said, you know, I think Nketi is knocking on the door of an England call-up, and lo and behold. Yeah. Yeah, and he did get that call-up today. And I do think this is a game where his talents may well come in quite well because I've seen some of the United players, particularly the United defenders we expect to see, uh, suffer with uh, smaller, trickier players as opposed to the big bruisers. You look at that, though. You look at that, Mo, and that, that point in, in, entirely. Arsenal have um, sold Balogun this week mm. because Balogun's an old-fashioned off-the-shoulder striker, an old-fashioned off-the-shoulder striker that likes the ball played over to him. Enketia is almost the antithesis of that because where Enketia is is at his best is nimble movement in tight spaces within the box. Mm -hmm. And and that's very much what Arteta is looking for in the striker. Okay, so final thoughts. Uh, Score predictions, you know I was going to ask you. Uh, Jim, you can go first. Uh, Ask Taz. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I really don't know, Mo, is, 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 is the honest well, I answer. I, I, I don't recognise this side, that's what I'm saying, you know? Okay. I think I think Arsenal win 2-1 because I think United just don't have the firepower off the bench. It's exactly the same score I was going to go because Arsenal have a physical impossibility in terms of keeping clean sheets at home. Well, that looks like unanimous and it probably will be Kai Havers to score the winner. I would put, <laughs> I, if anybody's interested, um, I would recommend putting, I don't know, a tenner on Bruno Fernandes to score in the first 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard it here first. I'm not sure what odds you'll get on that, but I feel like it's quite a good one. Now, normally, Man City at home against Fulham is the kind of fixture that will be thrown away, lost, and almost forgotten about within a show like this. But, Phil... Considering what Fulham did do at Arsenal last week, they'll be coming in there with a feeling that they can maybe get a repeat or maybe the chances of them getting a repeat have increased. We have to wait and see whether or not they will have Xiao Polina in their ranks. Um, 
does he pretty much make the decision of whether or not they can or can't, or do you think it's more of a bygone conclusion already? It feels like it because it's not it's wouldn't necessarily just be losing him. It would be more that any replacement that they did manage to bring in wouldn't be able to play because he wouldn't have signed in time. Given that it's what six p.m. as we do this on the Thursday evening, and I'd say the chances of Fulham getting something done by what is it midday tomorrow. Feels pretty far fetched, and would you want to throw someone straight in anyway? So it feels it feels like it's it, almost at the same time, probably not the worst game for it to happen. Because if it's happening, that say if they played Brentford uh, what two weeks ago, and they lost three nil, but if you just said you can have Palinia for Brentford or you can have for Manchester City, they're probably going probably prefer Brentford just because the the six point element of it. So there's there's probably a thing where it's not not a disaster for them. I, th- I think it's a, it's going to be a a tough game. Um, from memory, I think they got beat twice last season. I don't think they were. They, they, they look a bit of a. You know, they got they've gone to Everton already this season, and Everton have ran them round. I think and missed a lot of chances. Uh, they've been beaten at home to Brentford three 0 as I said, and that, that those two results aren't particularly encouraging for them as a as a general whole as a general rule. I don't think there's a good point at Arsenal last week, but I think. This isn't where Fulham are going to determine their season, is it, ultimately? No, and I think <clears throat> for for clubs hoping for a Manchester City slip-up, the fact that um, most teams going there aren't really expecting or even anticipating a Man City slip-up means it's really hard for us to look at it and say, maybe there is something there. Maybe I was being a bit optimistic putting this in, but damn it, I'm an optimist always. Tezza... There are a couple of midfielders on the move, potentially, around this fixture. We just mentioned Palinia. Um, Someone who maybe could have hoped Manchester United would target. Uh, and, of course, the other one playing, potentially, could be playing for Manchester City, Mateus Nunes, who they look like they are trying to push through from Wolves. Um, I'll ask you, first of all, do you think Palinia would have been something one you'd have hoped Manchester United would target? And then the second part of the question is how much of an impact do you think Nunes could have for Man City? So the first one, Palinha to Manchester United. For, for me personally, if I'm in charge, director of football, no. I think it's interesting with Palinha. I think Palinha's almost, his reputation's got better because of the lack of profile of defensive midfielder in the Premier League. I think if you take it back a couple of years where there's N'Golo Kante and a few other players... I think who it's are, just the Premier League thing, though, because I'm not sure it's necessarily just the Premier League thing. I don't think there's that many it could, it around. Could, it could be a European football thing. It could be a global football yeah. thing, yeah. That kind of old-school defensive midfielder is going to get from both boxes, but is really good in a tackle, covers ground. Basically similar to Declan Rice or an N'Golo Kante. There's not many, and I think that's why the price range starts from 70 mil upwards to 100 million. And I think depending on what your team needs will equate to whether you think paying 80 million, that's what Fulham have quoted Bayern Munich for, is, you know, it's whether that's good value for money or not. Personally, I think it's not. I think there are players who aren't at Polina's level who are a lot younger, who you can get, as we both know, Yusuf Fafana is one of them. Yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> for half the money... Um, a third of the money and you can give them the exposure by playing them so I think a lot of top clubs are lazy I do think he's a quality player I don't think Bayern Munich will be able to sign him I think it's way too much money um, and Fulham actually they're, they're almost signing Alex Awobi which I think would be really good but what was interesting I watched the TIFO video and they were showing Fulham's underlying numbers and 
they're like bottom for like expected ex, um, expected goals against conceded or something and um, conceded like in the bottom three of the most chances in the league. So it's showing that if they continue this kind of trend, even though the, they picked up a point last week against Arsenal, they could actually be in the bottom three. And if they were to lose Polina as well, then it could be quite disastrous. Mm. Uh, the second point on Matthias Nunez, I think that's a top signing for City. City just do this thing where they sign players who, basically what Man United used to do back in the day, they, they sign like the best player from the middle to lower teams um, in the league. Like Liverpool used to do that in the 80s. Yeah, Liverpool, mm. like like your Ake's, and people go, oh, is they really good enough? And because there's a winning culture and there's a... There's a confidence in the squad. That player just fits in seamlessly. Like when I looked at the business, they've signed Gavardiol, Kovacic, Nunez and Doku. And then when you look at that, if you take that away from City and you put those names against any other team in the league, you'd say that team has had the best or one of the best uh, transfer windows. But because it's City, it's you're just adding an embarrassment of riches to an already um, illustrious squad. So I think Nunez will, will probably find it easier to settle in because he won't have to be a star player. No, that's true. And he certainly looks, all intents and purposes, like a man who was told he would only be 12 months in Wolverhampton. Uh, <laughs> and he's acting that way yeah, now. Yeah, but that's what happens, isn't it? I mean, th- I mean, I mean, genuinely, that's what happens. You, 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 you take a big payday, you go and play for the best team in Europe, and then you bide your time. And if you're good enough, mm. you'll get in. And it hasn't worked for certain players like Callum, uh, like Calvin Phillips. But for other players, mm. you know, if you, I mean, I think it's a mentality thing. Don't get me wrong. And I use the Liverpool analogy. If you look at the, if you look at that team, circa nineteen eighty eight, it was almost primarily made up of players who played their trade at lower, at lower first division clubs. John Barnes, Ray Houghton, John Aldridge, Gary Gillespie, John Walk. Mm-hmm. They all played. You know, they were all the top top player, and, at, and then rose to the level, and then the they, and then, or or didn't, but it didn't matter. Because the squad was already so strong, and that's where it's all about the layering of an additional brick. You know, um, there's a couple of things. Firstly, Taz, why aren't you the sporting director at Manchester United? <laughs> Do you know what? Um, because because uh, for, for, for evidence would evidence would suggest <laughs> you, you could know. be doing a worse job. Yeah. put it that way. You know what? I don't know. I'd, I'd take a job at Fulham or anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right. Help any team out to be honest. Okay. Well, I mean, the Fulham thing. The you know, and what you were saying as well about. The Etihad now just has this place where people go, yeah, I'm not getting any points there, right? That just leans into the narrative of why mm. it's going to be so hard, so hard because that's not the case. People come to the, the Emirates and feel like they get the, they've got a chance, mm. right? And and at the weekend, we dropped two points against a team we, we should have absolutely beaten and already in the chat rooms and everywhere else within the Arsenal community, we're, all, all, we're already going... Well, they're two points that that are that City never drop in a million years. Well, another team who go into a big team and feel like they're probably going to get a chance of points is not the Forest going to Chelsea. And again, you probably wouldn't have said that a while back. But there's so many different stories you could choose with Chelsea, Phil. But for me, the real story of that team, when you actually watch them play, is Raheem Sterling. He has been inexplicably left out of the English squad today, uh, but he has been their best player, the one who makes him move. Obviously, against Luton, he gets two goals, one of which was vintage Sterling. Uh, so my question is, why the hell have they just spent £35 million over Cole Palmer, who plays in exactly the same position? 45? I, I have 
I have no, I have nothing. <laughs> I have absolutely nothing. I've never, like, I've never watched Cole Palmer and thought, oh, tell you what, I've never thought at any stage he'd be like a Manchester City regular. I always felt like he was given sort of token League Cup games and, you know, come on in the charity shield and have a, have a nice time. He did, mm. absolutely. It was a great goal. And, and sort of that that kind of player and he'd sort of end up, you know, getting a move to a like a mid-table club. He'd be a decent footballer and that'd be that. would be that. And now it turns out that Chelsea are doing 45 million on him for reasons I, I don't really understand. I think there's a lot of... There's a very odd... Um, Decision-making process of Chelsea. Do you think that will annoy Sterling more than Miss Nelson? I don't England? think it'll. I don't think it'll. I think Sterling knows he's honest. still the number yeah. one guy. I think, especially with Pochettino, I can imagine Pochettino probably similar to what Phil was saying. Probably a bit bemused by some of the transfer dealings because he's probably thinking, "Well, I've got Madueke here, and then there's Sterling. Then we just signed Angelo, but we loaned them out." And then we've got this another young lad from Benfica called Diego who played last night. So there's four right-wingers, one's on loan. So you bring in Palmer to replace the one on loan. So I'm back to four right-wingers or plays from the right-hand side. And he's probably thinking, what is happening? Yeah, it, it feels but, like there's something, like there's a, they've decided there's a hack. There's a really good piece in The Guardian by Barney Roney. I don't know if you've read it, but it's sort of like, maybe this, maybe he's right, maybe he's a genius, or maybe this is just incredibly like stupid. It feels it feels a lot like they think there's a farm system like there is in baseball. Yeah. And there isn't. And, and, and it's not in, the same thing. Yeah. And this feels like it could unravel. Like it could unravel. I mean, like a money ball thing. Not yeah. money ball, but in terms of, so for example, all the teams in baseball have teams underneath them where they just uh, send yeah, people yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what happens is yeah. they, they'll trade them and stuff like <clears> this. Whereas it's like he thinks that he'll be able to sort of use two players as a make weight at some point in two years time and I don't think this is true it's just that's the only thing I've got because it's the only thing I think that makes sense now obviously like I said we could kind of try to delve into the mind of Todd Bowley and <laughs> I feel like we would probably be wasting our time to a certain extent there's some interesting things coming out of what I'm seeing on the pitch Jim they are beginning to look like you can start to predict who's going to play when everybody's fit in terms of the back three mm -hmm. beginning to look settled. Obviously, um, Malagusto's come in where Reese James is now injured. We still haven't yet seen the Caicedo Fernandez pivot because Chukwameka's injuries meant that he's been further forward and Gallagher's been in there. But even despite all of these issues, they could have another good rousing home win against Nottingham Forest, go mm. into it with um, looking a little bit better about things and maybe could start to draw a line under some of the madness once the window closed and get on with uh, creating a team that can win football matches. You see, it's it's interesting what we've seen of Chelsea so far under Poch. Um, and Liverpool game, let's just talk about the Liverpool game very, very, very I know you've covered that loads uh, in, other, uh, in other places, but we've never really done it from the, from the perspective of Chelsea. And I thought Chelsea were really good that day. You know, and I don't know whether it's all a bit, it's all a bit new shoes and it's all like, look at us, we aren't we dead shiny and aren't we what, are we not what we were last season? I mean, I think one of the things that, that Poch has to do is distance himself quickly from what Chelsea were last season. Yeah. And, and I, to be In fair... fairness, to, they've got none of the players left. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, but the, well, yeah, but the, but the stink remains. Yeah, yeah, do you know what I mean? The stink absolutely. remains. And, and I think 
to be fair to him, he's done quite a good job with that. I mean, even in the West Ham game, they weren't awful in that game by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, and we all laughed heartily when West Ham won it. Um, yeah, we'll talk about maybe West Ham a little bit later, but I thought West Ham have actually come into the, the season quite well, well prepared. And I think a lot of it goes back to that phony war thing about who you meet at what time. You go back to Arsenal and the, and, and, and the Community Shield. Arsenal the better team in the Community Shield deserved to win it. But to be fair, you could see that City were miles behind Arsenal in terms of their preparation yeah. for that game. So it's all about kind of where they are. Against Forest, very interesting test for Chelsea this. Right, because Forest have been by no means shit so far yeah. this season. They've been very, very good, and for a second, a second go at, pre- at the Premier League, and obviously it would be a lot of people's uh, first choices or one of the one of their three picks to go down. Right, I think it'll be a very good barometer for where mm. Chelsea are you know, coming into this. Talking about Sterling for a moment. Was he twenty nine? I believe twenty-eight. Maybe he's only twenty. Maybe he's only twenty-eight. Mm. That boy's got a lot of football left yeah. in him, right? He's got a lot of football left in him, right? And if you're looking for someone to be the kind of, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily say he was the grown-up in the room, right? But every every guy has their day. Do you know what I mean? And maybe you know, you know, come with the hour, come with the man. Maybe Potch has seen something in it. Maybe it's the arm around the shoulder and said, you know what, you're my guy this season. Because that clearly wasn't happening last no, season no, in the no, basket thanks. case that Chelsea were last I mean, season. just looks like he's the sort of the main man. Yes. Mm. And he's got the, like, you're the main fella here. He obviously didn't have it at Chelsea, uh, at Chelsea, at Manchester City. Yeah. And now he's got it. And yeah. that just feels like it'll spurred him on it that appears that the more. rest of the team have bought into that yeah. element as well and particularly mm. particularly obviously with the churn in new players right um, I mean you know the, I think the sample size is still a little small on Caicedo to be honest with you I think we could all be sitting here if you've been an Arsenal player yeah. or a United player or a Liverpool player because we're all interested in him for one reason or other that's a lot of money for a player who who had a breakthrough season and would played a lot of it at right back mm. you know but and again Reese James is a big miss. He is a massive miss. He's a big miss. Club captain, right? Um, so to be out for you know, whatever length of time it is, additional pressure on Raheem. I think, you know, Raheem's probably quietly pissed off that he's not in the England squad, you know? So maybe he's got a point to prove. Well, I mean, Gareth Southgate literally said he's not happy in his press conference, so I don't think it's that quiet. Uh, <laughs> one last note on Forrest before we move on, Tezza. Uh, as Jim put... They did put the Williams up, both of you, yeah. uh, uh, but they couldn't get over the line and get that big win. Um, they look a different outfit this season. Obviously, Taiwo Awani scored against everyone. Um, do you give him a chance at Stamford Bridge? Yes, but the, the the issue with Nottingham Forest is I don't know who, again, it's another kind of thing of me saying if you want a director of football, chief scout, just hire me kind of thing. Their defence, I think you, they have money. They clearly know how to build an attack with Gibbs White, you know, Awoni, Johnson. And then you look at the defenders and I'm like, I know they've just signed Morelio yesterday for 15 million, but, you know, Joe Worrell, he's just signed a new contract and you're probably giving him that because he's been the captain for a few years and it's kind of like, you know, you know the club and stuff. But there comes a point where you go, we want to be a Premier League team and a team that stays up. You know, season in, season out, we can't be having Bolly, McKenna and Warrell as our starting three centre-backs. You just think that money that you spent in other places, if you just sign two half-decent centre-backs who 
have a bit of Premier League experience. That's the Felipe thing, though, isn't there? Yeah, he's he's 34, 35, <laughs> and it's how long can you rely on him? And you can only really play him in a back three, it seems. I mean, I think Forrest have been good. They play a lot of transitional football. I mean, that's, that's a quick, talented front three, but the problem is when they go in front or they have to keep the ball, they're a bit like, I don't know what to do. Yeah, and um, that was the problem they had last night. I mean, it was a change side, obviously. It's such Burnley, a cruel start for them, though, isn't it? It is cruel. But at the same time, so I know exactly what you mean, but when you're Nottingham Forest and you only really need to get 35, 40 points, if you've got four easy games at the start of the season and you can get to seven, eight, nine, ten, yeah, something like that, yeah. you're like, hang on, we're, at, we're out of August here and we're... <laughs> Twenty five percent of the way there. It's yep. and it, oh, absolutely. I but know. I, said, I know exactly what I, mean. said, I, I agree completely. But I said the same thing about Everton at, um, on this show last time I was on at the beginning of the season, and I said, on paper, Everton have got four winnable games before the window before the window closes <laughs> in the break. <laughs> right. <laughs> absolutely. Right. Right. But, well, I'm but, assuming you're counting good Doncaster. No, but you flip. But, but if you flip that on its head and you look huh? at Forest. Well, they they won their winnable game, which was which yep, was exactly. uh, Sheffield United, exactly. yeah. Yeah. right? You know, n- nobody was expecting them to get anything yeah. out of the other three games, and now they're out of the way. Yeah, mm, I mean, we completely. said similar about Burnley on the show last week that they were kind of unlucky that their winnable game against Luton was postponed, yeah. and now you look at their particularly their home fixtures. They've had Aston Villa just gone. They've now got Spurs, and they've got Chelsea, Man United to come. Um, it's looking tough for them. Um, what are they their next two home games, or are they? Yeah. Ju- the, well, the, yeah, the, the first four home games of the season are Aston Villa, are now Spurs, then Chelsea, then Manchester United. So it's, again, Burnley have got big issues. Obviously, I think there's some belief that company can galvanise the squad. It isn't too different from the squad he took them up with. They have made some additions. But looking at it from the outside, goals is going to be their main problem. Isn't it, it is. But what that, what that run of fixtures also does is it means that he's got quite a long time before anybody sort of gets a real real gauge on where they are and how good they are like I th- I, it's possibly both a blessing and a curse that they didn't get that um, uh, Luton game last week because if they, if they have lost to Luton mm. all of a sudden they've gone from being considerably better than Luton last season to dropping three points to them in a game that they've probably marked up and gone this is one of the games we win to get us in a really good position Whereas, if, but also if they won it, they're able to go. Oh, we're fine here. So it, it, it's which way? Which yeah. way does it go? And now they've got to come into these games, and they can also just go. Well, you know, it is what it is. You, you but see, goal. I agree. The goals are yeah. Really when when it comes to Spurs, uh, when it comes to Spurs, though, um, Jim, I feel like two goals a game seems to be their their current average. They're pretty much hitting that every game. They are looking like they're beginning to understand the things they're being told by the new manager this feels like the game that they can come in with the confidence they have from the last game win it and then start to really kind of draw a line under all of the the i'll call him the former captain business mm-hmm. well i think this this on paper um is a, is quite a really interesting game for the weekend because you talk about sample sizes it's like where are these <laughs> where are these two teams they obviously you know, Tottenham, Tottenham had a. We were laughing about Tottenham on the show last time, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're a good team all, all all over again. The manager's done a good job there. You know, he's getting tunes out of players that weren't being get that weren't being played right the, the, the previous season. Against you know, against Burnley, a very different Burnley to the one that we're used to seeing in the Premier League, and um, and 
turf moors where you have to go and get results, isn't it? So, so it, I mean, okay, it's not a cold, it's not a cold February night at Turf Moor, but at the same time, you know, football's about now. That's where that's where they are. I look at it and I think to myself, with Burnley, uh, Vincent, is he a career man? Is he looking at it and going, do you know what? I've got, I, I'm in a, I'm in a win-win situation here because I got him up playing completely different type of football, right? If my philosophy is embedded and I can make him mid-table playing reasonably attractive football, right? That puts me absolutely on the uh, on on the radar mm-hmm. of every club mm-hmm. in Europe that's looking for an attractive, you know, former big-time player who can attract players with a philosophy and all that sort of thing. Similarly, if it all goes tits up, they'll just appoint Sean Dyche, won't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a fair chance that he might be free in the near future. I think that's fair to say. So coming up now, we've got Neil from For the Love of Paul McGrath podcast, which is a cracking name, obviously, uh, talking about Liverpool versus Aston Villa. Hello, and now to get the latest on Aston Villa, I am joined by Neil Dunworth from The Love of the Paul McGrath podcast. It took me a while to say it, didn't it, to get the hang of the name, but I've got it now. Also part of the One Full Sport social network that we're a part of. So Neil, thanks for coming on and chatting Aston Villa to us. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely honoured. So... How are you feeling about your start of the season? It's been full of a, a few ups and one down, particularly on the first day. But how are you feeling overall about the first three games? Um, I, I, I very much feel that the the club and the fan base are still uh, kind of riding the wave of last season. We did get, as you say, we did get a rather rude uh, uh, awakening on the first day of the season where Newcastle came out of the blocks hot and we didn't. And it was simple as that. And they, they, um, well, we didn't play poorly. The scoreline was not anything anybody had in the script, I think. Um, Unai Emery is it, it, like everything to do with Aston Villa at this moment in time is Unai Emery. And, and we're uh, like Liverpool, we know having a good manager can, can allow you to get back up on the horse and kind of dust yourself down a small a bit quicker. And while we have played two teams that, are obviously not of the the caliber of a Newcastle or a Liverpool, and I don't think any Everton or Burnley fans will will hate me too much for saying that. We have shown very very uh, good incremental improvements from what we did wrong against Newcastle. So I think overall the start of the season between the new signings, between having a good finish the last season, I think every single Aston Villa fan is still very buoyed, and we're still looking forward to a very very good season. Yeah, do you feel like you picked up where you left off? Are you happy with the summer transfer business that you've done and hit the ground running this season? Yeah, uh, summer transfer business, I think, has been very smart. I think uh, we've we've gotten some very good names in there. Obviously, Moussa Diaby, um, Pau Torres, Uri Thielmans on a free. Um, we, we've been very smart in where we've uh, where we've recruited and who we've recruited and the type of player that we've recruited. We could have done without having two big injuries in Tyrone Mings and, and, and Amy Buendia, but you know, over the course of a season, we would hope that that would even itself out. Um, every team gets an injury that they don't want, and there's no such thing as a good injury. But I think that's how it forced Aston Villa to kind of look again at maybe the end of the transfer market where they didn't think they would be so busy. Clement Longley looks like he's going to be over the line before the end of the, the transfer window. So I think all in all, the, the and Nicolas Zaniolo, as I said, we, we will definitely see him at Anfield at the weekend. It's been very smart business from Aston Villa. We haven't gone and, and absolutely blown the, the war chest open. We've bought some nice players, experienced players um, in the right places. and But we're still we're still one or two players short. And I just don't know are we going to fill those gaps this current transfer window. 
Yeah, in terms of you mentioned the injuries there, do you feel like you're coping quite well without them? Because it's difficult when you lose two of your key players and they're quite leader figures as well in the team. But do you feel like you're so far coping okay without those players? Yes, I think from a schematic uh, footballing philosophy side of things, we are. Paul Torres has come in there. He's been a he's a ball playing centre half. Unai Emery wanted us to become more ball dominant, and and it is the the big piece for Tyrone Mings, much maligned amongst other fan bases who do often, um, you know, who who from time to time will uh, maybe pick up on his his errors and things like that. For Aston Villa, he's been very much a, a thought leader. He's been very much a kind of, a, that, that leadership, that big man, that presence um, within, within the dressing room. Uh, and his his loss is definitely being felt and it will continue to be felt throughout the course of the season. That was one of the biggest things that I think Unai Emery has to do is to identify the next next man up that's going to take that mantle. Looks like Ezri Kanza really has stepped up in, into that into that role recently. John McGinn obviously having the captain's armband is, re, is resurgent under Unai Emery. So I think it will be kind of leadership by committee from that point of view with Tyron Mings being out. But that's for all the people that we, we couldn't afford to lose. Tyron Mings will be up there definitely in the top two or three in the team. But we have lost him and it's, that's how good teams um, respond and, and they re, re, uh, regroup and, and Unai Emery will have a plan. I'm quite sure of that. Yeah, an unlikely hero, goal scoring hero, Matty Cash at the weekend. A really impressive performance. If we look ahead to the weekend game against Anfield. Talk us through how you think Aston Villa are going to set up. I know they've been tinkering a little bit with their formation and their style of play. So what are you expecting when they're playing against Liverpool? It's going to be interesting because uh, uh, we play Hibs midweek. Um, I think that's going to be a really rotated team. But uh, I expect Emmy Martinez, uh, we'll start with the goalkeeper because Emmy Martinez obviously missed the game against Burnley. I expect him to be back at the weekend, which would be a huge boost for this team. Really good goalkeeper. And and the drop-off that we would have from him to our sub-goalkeeper is quite stark, um, which which is okay. But, you know, you never want, like, you never want to be playing too many games without your without your first-choice goalkeeper. Um, being Irish, I know that isn't as big a deal for Liverpool with Cleveland Kelleher there. You know, he's uh, he's quite an able deputy. <laughs> but, uh, Superstar, yeah. We don't have the luxury at Villa, and that's not denigrating Robin Olsen. It's just the, the 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 difference between Martinez and difference what Martinez can do with his feet and so on, and that's very key to Aston Villa because Villa will try and go to Anfield and try and and um and 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 play through the middle, which is going to be a lot more difficult with 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 your recent signings over the summer and Alexis McAllister and uh, and Sabasly and the likes. Um, but Villa will probably, I imagine Villa will set up very much like they did against Burnley. Um, it, it looked on the face of it as as almost a four four two. Uh, for two, 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 whatever way you want to call it, the Duna Emery sets out. But for the majority of the game, we played with a back three where Kanza tucked in. Uh, we had Kanza, Diego, Carlos, Pau Torres, and that allowed, as you said, goal scoring hero, the the Polish Cafu, Matty Cash, to uh, to um, uh, get his get into the box. And obviously, Luca Dean was able to uh, was able to maraud on the left hand side. I expect this to set up similarly, and the reason I expect us to do that is because. And I know every team tries to do this to pin back Trent Alexander-Arnold and to, tr- and to pin back uh, Andy Robertson. Some teams do it and some teams get destroyed when they try it. And I think that's probably Villa's best bet to be able to do that is to to, to almost consolidate to, to three at the back, to try and pack midfield as best we can and then hope that they have um, Diaby 
float in behind Ollie Watkins. Um, and with Virgil van Dijk being out for you guys, maybe hope that Watkins can occupy, if it's a Joe Gomez and a Matip, if it's Joe Gomez and a Kunate, occupy them and maybe Diaby picks up off the scraps there. But the, I think the game plan will be try and invite pressure and quickly get in behind the fullbacks if possible. But we're watching Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool for how many years? Six years. It's easier said than done to do that. And if you don't get it right, you get destroyed. So it's going to be it's going to be very much um, a, a balancing act, I think, for Unai Emery at the weekend. Yeah, and you mentioned that Virgil van Dijk being out. How do you assess the challenge of coming to Anfield and playing Liverpool? Because it's perhaps not a team that you were, you know, for example, the 1920 season or the season before that when Liverpool were flying, but do you still feel like it's one of the toughest places to go as an opposition fan? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there is, it's, you know, and, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on a Liverpool podcast, but uh, there are certain teams whereby, you know, you, you've, you've got that fortress Anfield, you've, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's it's ingrained, it's it's ingrained in the city, it's ingrained in the fan base, you know, that that is their home and you don't come in, you don't mess up their home. So it's as simple as that. And, and there is that aura, there is that kind of, um, that, uh that kind of uh, mental block that some teams have when they go there. I, I know from being a Villa fan back in the 90s, you know, all you had to do was mention Robbie Fowler and we were 1-0 down. He didn't even have to play. It was that <laughs> simple, you know. it was it, So there are these kind of mental hurdles that teams have to get over when they go to certain teams and go to certain grounds. And, and Anfield is definitely one of those. Put it this way, if we could petition the league to play, play Liverpool at Villa Park twice a season, we would do that. It would make it easier for us. <laughs> <laughs> Ollie Watkins doesn't seem to mind playing against Liverpool though he's a player with a, a very good record so are you thinking he's going to be one of the key players at the weekend he is yeah he's always so the amount of work that Ollie Watkins does always goes unnoticed and, and always goes almost um unrespected at times I would nearly so go so far as to say he went on a great scoring goal scoring run towards the end of last season but hasn't scored in his first three outings for Villa this year Um, the work rate he has is immense the the occupation of center halves is textbook you know from a center forwards point of view but he does like he he has he needs a lot of opportunities to score and to get scoring. So he needs to warm up, if that makes sense. He needs to get hot when he's striking and he hasn't hit those hit those uh, those heights just yet for Villa. But saying that, as you said, he does love a goal against the big teams. He does love to go in and and uh, uh, and score against the, the traditional top six. And um, that's the one good thing about Watkins is uh, you just he will start scoring again at some stage. You just, you just don't know when it is. And it could just as easily be two at the weekend against Liverpool, or it could be, he, he might score two. Uh, he might score. If he starts against Hibs during midweek, he might score another hat-trick and that might kick him into action, but he's not a natural striker. That's for sure. But his work rate and, and, and his output as a striker has been really impressive. And I, I expect him to, to, to be the linchpin because we don't have any other striker that has real Premier League experience at the club at the moment. So we need him to stay fit. No other striker, but a lot of danger players. So in, in terms mm. of the game at the weekend, who are you thinking those danger players are going to be? Who's going to cause Liverpool some problems? Moussa Diaby has been just, he's been the icing on the cake for Villa this season. Um, he is as advertised. Uh, Villa, Obviously, Villa's uh, record signing, a £50 million player, um, and he looks every inch that. Uh, he's been almost unshackled a small little bit. He's allowed playing that free a free roll around in and around behind Ali Watkins. And uh what what I've seen of him so far is that that, that the amount of space he creates for other players and the ability he has to to elevate the pace of our attack. And what I mean by that is 
Villa last season had to attack via Alex Moreno, who's injured at the moment. If they wanted to attack with pace, they had to go down the left wing. Yes, we had Leon Bailey on the right wing, but Leon Bailey was consistently getting caught up in dribbles and he was dispossessed quite a lot. He was a frustrating character last season. Alex Moreno was our pace outlet. Now we have that that through the middle with Diaby and it's really kind of elevated how fast we can attack uh, and it's given other teams something to think about. So Musa Diaby is definitely somebody uh, to look at. John McGinn is a revolutionised uh, midfielder under Unai Emery, as is Bubakar Kamara, as is Douglas Luiz. Um, so that's, that's, our, that's my favourite area of the field to look at, those three guys in the middle of midfield weren't too nice to look at against Newcastle because they were bullied and but I'm really looking forward to see how they how they do up against uh, uh, Alexis McAllister um against uh, Samuslai and, and probably Gakpo at the weekend because that's going to be a really interesting test and I genuinely feel if Villa can hold their own in midfield that this is going to be a really entertaining game. Yeah, I was about to say do you think that's where the challenge is going to come down to that midfield area who wins the battles there is going to dictate who goes on to win the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and I think the I think the Villa midfield is uh, is is an underrated unit uh, within the Premier League at the moment. But um, I'm not one of these fans that just goes on and says everybody is underrated in my team. There's obviously areas where we need to improve, otherwise we we would win the league. That's it's that simple. But um, they're they're a team. They're a group of three that are are really beginning to blossom, playing together, and and, and beginning to understand each other. And, and they're super important to Unai Emery's tactics now that we are trying to play off in the back more. Finally, then let's give me a well. I've got two questions actually to finish on. What's a, what's a good season look like for Aston Villa? First of all, and then I'm going to ask you for a prediction. But first of all, what is a good season if you're an Aston Villa fan? I know you're juggling the constraints of playing in two different competitions. Looks like you're almost certainly going to get through to that next stage. Mm-hmm. This will actually come out in the morning when that will be confirmed. But what's a good season look like for, for you guys? I think I think uh, consolidate our position within the within the Premier League. Uh, Unai Emery has stated the Premier League is his is his focus this season. I think every manager says that though. Um, a Premier League, the Premier League is there is his focus. So I'm thinking if we can finish seventh or higher, which is a monumentally tough task in you know considering the strengthening that's gone on in teams that yeah. finish below Villa, monumentally tough task. And I, I think, you know, you, you look at the teams that have won the Europa Conference League, you can coast through that for the first for the first group stages, essentially, until it gets to the knockout competition. So it's be interesting to see how he looks at that. But I expect us to go far in that competition. Should we qualify? Should Hibs not overturn the 5-0 lead? Um, and, 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 I, and I expect us to, to you know, to... To, to be solid within within the Premier League. And so seventh and potentially, you know, late stages of the Conference League is what I would be looking at. That I think that would be an amazing season. For, for me, it's always like, I, I always start the season and say, I want Villa to win the FA Cup. I, I just just love the FA Cup. Um, but I don't think they're going to win it this year. It's as simple as that. I just, I think the the the. Europe is probably a bigger carrot at the minute for 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 the club itself and for the PR that it brings and for the the stature it brings. So I think they're going to throw their resources in there and also towards the league. Uh, so yeah, yeah, let's let's win the Conference League and finish seventh. I think think I'd be delighted with that. That would be a great season. Finally, then give me your prediction for the weekend. We had a Villa fan on this morning as well for a different podcast, and he predicted a two-one. So you're going to be but to, to Villa, by the way. So you're going to be that bold. You're going to go bolder. What are you saying? What's your prediction for the weekend? I have already predicted a 1-1. Um, a 1-1, nice. Yeah, um, I predicted a 1-1. Now, I did also predict a 1-1 when Villa played Newcastle as well. So um, what do I know when Villa go away from home to, to a team uh, that finished in the top six last season? But I'm I, I'm thinking a 1-1. Um, I'm thinking that there would be 
some players that play at the weekend might play the first first 60 minutes, maybe one or two tonight. I don't think Villa are really set up well for that at the moment. Um, and and I, I, I'm just, look, I don't think you can ever be confident going to Anfield. We've just spoken about it there as well. And my heart has been broken too many times getting optimistic about going to Anfield. So I'm going to go with my 1-1 to manage my own expectations as much as anything else. Well, it looks like to be an exciting game. It usually is between these two teams. So let's hope for that at least at the weekend. Neil, thank you very much for coming on. And I will hand over back to Mo and the guys in the room. Thank you, Neil, there. Now, obviously, there is a Liverpool angle to this. And as much as I'm sure that these two will probably like a crack at us, I think there's enough coverage in Liverpool elsewhere that we can move on to another. And there's another big game coming up here with the Saturday night game, Brighton against Newcastle. Tezza, these are two teams who came in with high expectations into the season, but have just come off the back of painful home defeats. Obviously, Newcastle to Liverpool <laughs> and uh, Brighton to West Ham. Um for whom do you think it's more important to bounce back or do you think that, again, like we were saying with some other teams, it's still too early for either of these to kind of make any major decisions? I think it's it's important for both teams. Um, like everyone who listens to this probably knows that I always bang on about Brighton because I think they're fantastic, fantastic, well-run club and they just churn out talent and they sell them for profit and the club just keeps on going to new heights. I think for Newcastle especially, I think there's an expectation this season that they made the top four and with the money that they've spent that they need to kind of be within the top four, five, six and they have the pressure of being in the Champions League as well. If they start to kind of drop in the league, that might then affect their Champions League form, which everybody, I'm sure all the fans are looking forward to. I think for Brighton, if they don't come out of this game with a win, I think they can just go again. They kind of like consolidate. They they kind of just kind of go, okay, you know, last season, the Zerbi wasn't even in charge or, or just came in at this point. So it's a case of there's a long season to, to go. I think this season for both of them as well, Brighton and Europe, um, obviously they're still trying to bring in players and Tufati apparently on the way, which yeah. which would be a great, great, great signing for them. I can't wait to see how he'll fit in because I don't actually think he starts for them. No, he doesn't. Which is kind of <laughs> I can't wait to see how people are going to pronounce his name. Yeah. <laughs> which is very strange when you think we, you know, from years gone by, you think he'll be Brighton's best ever player, but now he's going to be fighting for wherever he plays on the left or off the front. I think I think the Zerbi again. He's gonna have to change his tactics a little bit. I think West Ham showed give Brighton the ball and sit off them and hit them in transition. Might be the way that most teams try and play Brighton. And if they're gonna do that, Newcastle are probably the worst team to try and play at this moment in time. Um, just a quick one on Newcastle. I think some of their business has been okay. I don't think it's been mind-boggling or change um, transformative. I think. They've signed good players, but they've just signed more of the same. I thought this was the chance to, when they were linked with Diaby, I thought, go and get Diaby. But they went for Harvey Barnes, but then they signed Gordon. So you got two left wingers for 100 million almost combined. When you only got one right winger, it's, it was a bit confusing. Um, I think they will do well, and I think, um, but yeah, I actually think Brighton will beat Newcastle. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned Antio Fassi there. You could argue that he's the kind of player you should assume that Newcastle will be targeting with Champions League football. But uh, I'll come to you on this, Phil. Neil, our Neil, often likes to talk about the stories the teams can tell themselves. 
And I think for Brighton and Newcastle, there is a bit of a difference here. Brighton, obviously, they didn't beat West Ham, but they were going into that game available to go top of the league, whereas Newcastle would be staring at three consecutive defeats if they lost this game. So, obviously, Brighton being at home, they do feel like they'll be able to come out here and kind of wipe that away. But as Tessa mentioned, there does look to be some glaring deficiencies, and I hate to do this to him, but they're playing James Milner right back. And West Ham targeted him rather mercilessly uh, that weekend. Do you think this is something that's going to have to change? Obviously, they've still got Joel Veltman, Tariq Lamptey knocking around. He can play right back. Pascal Gross has done it in previous seasons, but he's looking pretty good in midfield, to be honest. So, from Deserve's perspective, do you think this is one where he has to maybe give the old guy a break? I don't think in this type of game he does, because I don't think Newcastle are going to go there with the same approach as West Ham, where West Ham's approach sort of a byproduct of that was that James Milner became very isolated because Brighton got so high up the pitch. Like, it was insane how high up the pitch they got and how much of the ball centre-backs and full-backs would have sort of within 25, 30 yards of the West Ham goal. That's just not going to happen against Newcastle. We're not going to come and go, 20% possession is absolutely fine with us. That's just not going to happen, is it? So the game will be, a, uh, Brighton will be a bit less I mean, I was going to say compact then, but it's not really compact, is it? It's just sort of the defenders will be less exposed 70 yards from goal is sort of the the way I'm the way I'm thinking it will happen. So I don't think it's something that happens in this game, but I think they might play, for example, they might have, you know, Everton in three weeks or whatever. I don't know. I've just made a fixture up off the top of my head. But Everton, for example, feels like they could sit in and potentially target that thing Whereas I don't think Newcastle will get the opportunity and I don't think they'll want the opportunity either, to be to be perfectly honest. No, that's interesting. I mean, looking at Brighton's fixtures after Newcastle, they've got, well, Man United uh, away uh, and then Bournemouth at home. And then they've obviously got Chelsea in the Cup. So, Bournemouth yeah. at home is a good example of what yeah. I'm, what I'm yeah, talking about. Really. Definitely. So, Jim, where do you sit on this? Obviously, Brighton are in a situation where they are gaining lots of plaudits for their work. They are still continually selling players for great value. But, I don't know, history the, has told us that that's hard to do consistently for a long time. Right, Brighton and Newcastle are probably the two teams in the Premier League I want to piss off the most. <laughs> right, right. Because, because just Brighton are just so annoyingly lovable. Right, you know, I've had enough of that. Right, <laughs> right. I just, you know, and I wonder whether maybe there's a little bit of second season syndrome with what might be emerging with Brighton. Because obviously they have lost some players, you know. I mean, I read in the notes it says a simplistic read is that Gilmore and Gross aren't Casido and McAllister. Well, of course they're not. They're miles better. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know the. But Phil makes the point about the press leaving Milner massively exposed, and um, that press absolutely destroyed Arsenal at the Emirates at the end of last season. Mm. Now, admittedly, um, Arsenal were pulling tugs by that point. They looked, mm. they looked, they looked a busted flush, but. There was something really compelling about that, but with that compulsion to do the same thing because it gets the same results, um, everybody spent the summer analysing that and they're going to have to have a little bit more fluidity and a little bit more tactical flexibility and, of course, have the players that can re, re, yeah, re-emphasise mm-hmm. the way that plays. Now, 
I don't think Milner ideally was. I, I think if, if Milner was bought as a right back, and there was a mental decision, and it will, I I, and it will get the uh, it will get the treatment it, it, it richly deserves. I don't think that's the case. Um, so I don't expect to see that in the long term. With regards to Newcastle, they're, they're, they're I mean. I mean, I'm an Arsenal fan, and I loved Sunday afternoon because mm. I just wanted them to wind their necks in, you know. And there's a there's a bit about that where I think Eddie Howe has a bit like Deserby has got a lot to prove this season, right? Because the Eddie Howe myth sooner or later has to come to reality, doesn't it? We and we will know by the end of this season who Eddie Howe actually mm. is, you know. And again, Newcastle away. If you want to go, sorry, sorry, Brighton away. If you want to go and um, and go and finish in the top four, you know, you're fighting on two fronts. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to go and do it there. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going Brighton home with me. I think the thing with the criticisms of Newcastle, particularly in the wake of what happens against Liverpool, Phil, is it's not so much even the players or the tactics. It's the mindset of having a big team like Liverpool vulnerable are there for the kill and not being able to put them away in the same way that they seemed apparently quite pleased to only lose 1-0 at the Etihad and then as we've mentioned you look at their Champions League group they're playing PSG they're playing Borussia Dortmund they're playing AC Milan three unquestionably big European giant teams they are going to have to work out how to play and how to beat them and how to believe that they can beat them yeah the belief the the big thing for me because you watch that the, the the second half it felt like they progressively sort of believed less and less and less that they had what it takes to sort of kill a kill a proper big team off it just you know it just didn't feel like that they they had that within them that you could see it creeping out of them very gradually and they'd make stupid decisions like the ball Gimaresh plays for the, the hits Elliot in the chest and breaks to Salah for the winner like What's he doing? Like I'd love to, I'd love to hear what he thought he was doing there. He tried to play a little ball with the outside of his right foot in the ninety-third minute. It's like they've got ten men. You shouldn't be, you physically shouldn't be able to kick the ball at mm. someone when they have a man fewer than you. And he managed it. And it's sort of obviously it was like their brains were not functioning quite properly like, as they as they should be. And it was, it just felt weird. And I think I think if they come away from this and they've only got three points from. What is albeit the difficult starts the season? They've got to be a bit worried. I mean, they could be nine points behind Manchester City, seven points behind Liverpool. That's that's not where Newcastle, I imagine, would want to have, would want to have found themselves. The manager won that game, though. The manager won that game. You mean our manager? Yeah, 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 I agree. Yeah, it was it was all about the manager, right? That's when you know you've got a great man. Mm-hmm. on the sidelines because there were moments in that game I thought God Liverpool are going to get absolutely done here but slowly but surely even after the Van Dijk even after the Van Dijk um, sending off they, they came back into the game They he was able to see the game the bigger picture of the game what was happening in the game and it's that in-game management whilst going do you know what a point not a point boys mm-hmm. not a point we can win this game, and then you you know you bring on a basket case like uh, Nunes, who can <laughs> you know who you know. To be fair to him, I'm not entirely sure he knows what he's doing half the time, right? But that it's that 
a, a, you, who doesn't love a player like that? Yeah, it's the belief that you can overcome the potential deficits and go out there, be brave and win the game. And then you look at um, Newcastle taking off, obviously, Izzad taking off Denali. They didn't want to go with two strikers against 10 men. But when you make those substitutions, it can't feed in positively to no, the rest exactly. of course, like Arsenal against Fulham right. with taking Jorginho, you know, bringing Jorginho off when they were down to 10 men. Put Smith Rowe on, man, have a go. Mm-hmm. You, know, get, 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 you know, come on. And you're right. I think management and managers, particularly at big teams, they do play more of a part than maybe they do do elsewhere. But saying that, another manager we're going to go and talk about now is Thomas Frank, who has, again, quietly been fantastic at Brentford. I mean, so far, they've scored more goals this season than Arsenal, than Man United and Chelsea. And they've done it all without Ivan Tony, obviously. And they haven't missed a beat, really. Um, they look like they just seem to be better than they were last year for the third consecutive year running. Brentford, another team that I, I'm a big fan of, similar to Brighton. I think Brentford, Brentford, I don't know how they do it, but they've got this trick of assembling a squad and a team on paper that if five of them walk past you, you wouldn't have a clue who they are. But when you see them on the pitch, you're like, oh, I know who he is. And I think that then kind of plays Would you into- know the difference between Norgard and Jensen? I mean, if the other kids on, yeah. <laughs> but if probably and not. Tess, that's the sort of stuff you're going to need when you're the manager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. But I think, yeah, the, the squad building and kind of the team chemistry um, that they have created, it, it kind of rubs off on any player that then joins in into the, the Brentford kind of squad and the hierarchy. They all know, OK, there's no Ivan Tony, but, you know, well, Visser, who was playing on the left, we'll just put you up front. And Shahada, who we signed in January, you'll just come in. And he scored a screen the other day in Palace. And I think it's everyone just knows their role and what to do. And I, I listened to a podcast, um, they were talking about how they do recruitment and kind of the things that they look for with certain players. They all have conversations with players about attributes that the players have that they might not have kind of, you know, been utilised in the in the past so like they signed Ben Mee and, and they said they spoke to Ben Mee and they were like I know you've been playing at Burnley but I think you can be a ball playing centre back instead of just knocking it long you can really play and he was like uh, yeah I think so kind of thing and it was like well no we, we've got the data to kind of back it up and then he comes in and then he just yeah. he just does it and then he's great <laughs> and that's the thing isn't it like using your own data to convince you of something that you weren't completely sure of and to then use it to elevate your game that's that's coaching yeah that is coaching and I think as well another thing that happens really well for them is apart from Ryan Tony I don't think any team looks at their players and goes I'll sign that player I'll sign that player so they can keep nine of the eleven season in season out. They sign an extra player and then that player becomes a star. They sell them on for a big money. Like, I think Tony will leave in the next, maybe January, maybe end of the season. They might make 60, 70 million, 80 million on him. They go and sign another two players and the, the machine just keeps on ticking. Brentford are small enough, though, to to do it the old way, I think. Mm. You know, because the, the, the reality is that their wage bill will already the smaller ones in the Premier League anyway. Because... Just, just on FFP rules, you know, the, the, you know, it's a small ground. But again, that leans into the narrative because mm. it's always packed. It's a noisy place, mm-hmm. right? Nobody wants to go and play no. there, you know, unless you, unless you're in the home team. And of course, you've got to have a reasonably small squad, so you sort of need to see the whites of their eyes a little bit and 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 suss them out. I remember Tony Adams talking about that um, about when he was signed for Arsenal. He talked about it recently in in, in relation to Arsenal's 
hitherto transfer policy before I do an Arteta got yeah. good at it. And um, I'm saying, like, you know, there's way too much made of, like, data and analysis and money ball and all that sort of stuff. Sometimes you've got to go to the house, you've got to meet the family, yeah, you've got to see what's going on. And, and, and a player like Ben Mee... Is, is case in point. I'm amazed that, that that some of the bigger clubs haven't come in for him mm. because with the number of games he's got uh, in him, I mean, and the teams where he's played his football, if you want a, an apprenticeship playing football, go and play for Burnley mm. because you'll be busy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, you, you could argue that Everton signed all but the only good Burnley in the half. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe sure. that's me being harsh. Um, Phil, we're all very, very high on Brentford, clearly. I think another team who are probably looking at them with awe and maybe an idea of where they want to be is Bournemouth. They've obviously spent a lot of money over the last 12 months. They've brought in a whole new team, new management, and it looks like they are upperly mobile, but as yet, the results haven't fully reflected that. Do you think that this is one, although we've all said great things about Brentford, do you think this is one where they feel that we should try and really get a win under our belt again before this break comes up. Bournemouth? Bournemouth. Yeah, sorry. You said, you said Brentford and you threw me for a second. Okay. Right, uh, it's just it's fine. Um, yeah, I think, again, I think a point pointers probably all right from this. Again, this is not a nice start to the season, really, is it? Liverpool away, West Ham at home, Tottenham at home, Brentford away. It's four teams who will either finish in the top 10 or have a big argument about wanting to finish in the top 10 and Bournemouth are probably just not quite at that level I think what they're trying to get going there seems really interesting I think the the owner has obviously started a um, NHL team from, from scratch in the last sort of 5 to 10 years and that sort of bodes fairly well because it almost feels like what Bournemouth needed to do after coming up and obviously losing the Eddie Howe thing which was you know was a part of what they were for their entire first spell in the Premier League, wasn't it? Now it almost feels like they needed to, to completely start again, move on from that, and build up from just from the bottom and get a new culture, new everything basically. And it looks like they've done that because it's a, it's very different. They've got a very promising young manager from Spain. They've brought in lots of they made lots of what look like intelligent signings and they look well thought out and they they, they look not like the a Brentford and a Brighton type signing but they look like thoughts gone into them and there's a mm-hmm. process to it which I think is it's been lacking at Everton in recent years for example there's just hasn't felt like there's been any joined up thinking when it which no. it feels like that's what it is at Bournemouth at the minute and yeah I, th- I think they'll they'll be, they'll take a point but even if they don't get anything this weekend it's not an absolute disaster for no. them is it I watched them on uh, against Tottenham and um, the big thing is they're missing I know Adams has picked up a knock. Scott, you know, he's not fully fit yet. They started with Rothwell and Billing played a lot last season as a second striker, 10. He had to play in midfield. There's big, massive gaps in the midfield. And if they play Brentford and they're not on it, then I think, especially from set pieces, I think it's got Brentford 3, Bournemouth 0 written all over it. It does feel like one of those situations where, like you say, they are still just getting together, trying to find their form, and Brentford are a little bit further along. Jim, big loss, Gary O'Neill, though, wasn't he? You know, um, in, in you know, in, after doing so well. I mean, it's a big loss to him, yeah. Although obviously he's found a, a new job, but I think Phil's point is that kind of he would have almost represented more of the older 
version of Bournemouth and mm. they're maybe looking to the future with well, I, I also thought it was interesting that a lot of clubs don't do this when a manager's done well for them they don't they, they basically go you're going to continue to do well it's sort of similar when like a team gets promoted yeah. and no one ever goes do you know what we should do here get a better manager and you yeah. do it with all the players everyone yeah. does it with the players but they never do it with the manager and it always baffles me that no one does it and this is sort of what they did. Mm. It's an old football thing, though, isn't it? It's like you've earned the right to give it yeah. a crack. But yeah, sometimes... Well, sometimes, like, some... for example, when Neil Warner got Cardiff promoted, they should have just gone, nice one, thanks a lot. We know you're yeah, not... Yeah, we know yeah you're because not... some managers are not yeah. Premier League managers. Mm. And, some, and some of them overachieved that much that mm. they've got a team up that has no right to stay up anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the new manager, of course, he was he was approached by Leeds, wasn't he? Um, yeah. And and his team wouldn't allow him... The club at Vallecano, was it? Yeah. Um, they wouldn't allow him to, um, to talk to them then. Now, obviously... He's probably thanking them. Well, yeah, well, you, but, but Leeds are a much bigger club than Bournemouth. A much bigger club. So you wonder whether or not is it is it a stepping stone? I would always say that actually, Bournemouth isn't the worst place to, to ply your trade if you're learning le- learning the ropes as a as, as a Premier League manager. And I also think that 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 they maybe have got one eye on the bright the Brighton model and maybe are trying to. It's all going on down the south coast. You know what I mean? They're all they're all being dead cool and hipster down there around the way they uh, run their run their clubs, but. Well, if Areola does have a subscription to Sky and he watches the championship and sees Leeds, he definitely will be thanking them. And we're at the final part of the show, and this is where it starts to get really interesting. We're looking at the teams around the bottom, and first up, we've got Anna Wilson to talk about Sheffield United versus Everton. And I'd like to be joined now by Anna Wilson, Sheffield United fan. And Anna, it was a, it was a really spirited loss at the weekend. I, I almost don't think you can ask for, for too much more when you play Manchester City. How, how do you feel about, about that result? Does it give you, I, I guess, confidence going forward or does it sort of feel similar to, to the band on the Titanic playing as the, as the ship was still sinking? <laughs> no, to be fair, I, I I fully expected us to lose and certainly by more than one goal. So when the goal went in, obviously it was a bit gutting because it was so late and so soon after we'd scored, but I fully expected us to lose. So it was probably one of the, the least upsetting late goals we'll ever concede, I think, because it was a bit of a foregone conclusion from my point of view anyway. So, um, yeah, we, I was quite surprised with how we played, I have to say, but um, pleasantly surprised anyway. Yeah, and, and and what was that feeling like when when Bogle does come on come on and score? Because I, I, I know from when you're watching City as a Liverpool fan, you sort of hang on on those moments almost. But if, if you're if you're the opposition fan in, in in that sense, and and it's and you know it's Sheffield United, it's Man City. I remember so many people going into the weekend were saying how Sheffield stood absolutely no chance in in, yeah. in that game, and then suddenly it feels like well, you might be getting a point. <laughs> Yeah, well, genuinely couldn't believe it. Obviously, it was the first shot on target we'd had. Um, and obviously, they'd been on top, even though they'd been pretty pretty wasteful from their shots. But yeah, we, I was absolutely... It's funny, I, I, I go to the match with my dad, but he couldn't come. So I went with a friend who's not actually Sheffield United fan. She supports Barnsley. And even she was cheering and uh, she didn't even support us. So I thought, oh, that's a good sign. Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess if, you, if you're sort of assessing this Sheffield United squad at the moment, it's in a bit of a funny place, isn't it? You've got the manager coming out saying that he wants to make a few more signings before the window. And it's 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 a young squad and it seems to sort of be getting younger with every transfer move that, that is made, really. Is is that something that fans are seeing as, as you know, an, an exciting project to get behind, if, if not for this season, then at least for the future? Definitely. To be fair, it's not something we've ever really done. Certainly, in 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 the past that I can remember, we've we've often probably signed experience. So it's it's quite a welcome surprise because obviously, even if they don't work out necessarily as signings with them, 
with them being young, you'd hope we wouldn't necessarily lose any money over them. So, yeah, I'm pleasantly surprised. And you would imagine that the if we get the loans in before the end of the week, then they'll be young players as well. So, yeah, I think it can only be a good thing, really. And what do you think it means in in terms of this sort of this the the quest for Premier League survival? Because I think when you've when you've talked about sort of sand experience there, that's that's that was almost the, the traditional way of staying up. As you come up and you try and get a bit of Premier League experience, maybe mi- mixing a few young players there. But it, it seems like this is a really different a, a approach and strategy by Sheffield now. Definitely, yeah. Um, like I said, it, it certainly is refreshing. It's it, you know it isn't something I've, I've ever experienced from us really so it it is very nice even though these people we've never really heard of the people that were signed from abroad i've never really heard of any of them the ones that have signed this season so it means that there's not, not much pressure on them i suppose as well you know we all know what happened with brewster and his his big fee and mcburney you know if the people don't arrive for huge fees then hopefully they'll it might increase the chances of doing a bit better yeah, and you mentioned a few of you those players coming in from abroad being unknown. Obviously, the the latest signing was Cameron Archer. I don't know how much fans sort of knew about him, but he but he does come with with quite an exciting billing. To to be honest, from from Aston Villa. So, uh, are fans feeling excited by the business done so far? And what more do you think needs to be done over the next few days? Yeah, we definitely are excited about Archer. I mean, not just because we we desperately need a striker because we've we've got injuries anyway. But yeah, he you know played against us last season and he scored two goals and you know I think he was the second high scorer in. The- in the championship and he he only there for half a season so yeah they, we're definitely excited about him I think I think we need a couple of potentially attacking players I think in the in the last few days of the window we've been linked with obviously the two lads that were on loan last season from Man City to Doyle and McAtee which we could only get one on loan whether we'll even get either of them I don't know but either either of them would be fantastic really but I think potentially a Another midfielder and an attacking midfielder would be would be great if possible. But I've only really seen his link with them two and Palestri for Man United really, and he's he's fairly unproven as well, isn't he? But he's been on the Man United bench for the last couple of games, so whether they'll let him out or not, I don't know. And I presume the outgoing business has, has generally been seen as, as as surprising to 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 put it in in a nice way. There's talk now potentially of George Baldock going to, to to Greece as well. How how deep is the concern among supporters that you will be left a little bit short in terms of you know squad numbers, but also I guess in terms of you know experience at the back end of this window. I would hope we wouldn't let anybody else go that's that's got that kind of level of experience. I think you know Berger and 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 going was a bit of a different kettle of fish, obviously because they were both out of contract, but. Um, I don't think we'd let Baldock go because we've we've got very little depth at right back because I know Bogle scored on Saturday, but it was his first time he's played this season. He's been out since the back end of last season. So I, I would hope that we wouldn't let anybody else go who's, you know, probably more than likely to be first team. Yeah, and, and the manager's come out and, and as as I mentioned before, talked about how much how many more players he wants to get in before the windows ended. It seems like it's quite a sort of refreshing honesty that comes from him. And it does seem, you know, from the outside looking in at least to have to have quite a resounding support network there. Is is that the case internally, especially among fans? And and do you see that remain in the case over the course of the season, the support for the manager? I think so. I think even if, you know, we had the kind of season that we had the last time we were in the Premier League, you know, and, and had, you know, didn't win till, what was it, December or January. I think that the fans will still be behind him. You know, he's, he hasn't really been back that much with the money and he's been a bit hamstrung with the people that we've had to sell. So we'd have to do pretty horrifically, I think, this season for, for the majority of the fans to probably call for his head out. I certainly wouldn't unless something goes very, very badly wrong anyway. Well, there'll be a lot of Liverpool fans on, on on this side, hoping that it will go well for for you guys at the weekend. It's Everton at, at home, of course, and, yeah. and give, given their struggles, is this one that United fans are sort of looking at with with genuine optimism? I think we've got to, haven't we? You know, the well, it's 
it's a tricky one. You just don't know which way it's going to go because obviously I watched the highlights from their game on Saturday and they lost, but they had, they had the, the better of the chances that I saw. So you just don't know, do you? It's, um, I would hope that we'd get at least a point, but who knows? You just don't know which way it's going to go, do you? Yeah. And, and where, where do you think that game would be won and lost? You mentioned that Everton, you know, have, have looked, I guess, quite dominant, at least in, in terms of possession in, in a couple of their games so far. They've looked like they are, you know, the better team in a couple and, and then almost been unfortunate, I guess, by the end. Do you think it would be a case of, you know, Sheffield having to soak up some pressure from Everton and, and, and try and hit them on the break? Yeah, potentially. I mean, you know, we've got McBurney back fit now and, and hopefully Archer will play on, on Saturday. So we finally got some some fit strikers back. But I suppose it's, it'll be down to them finishing the chances as well. So they've just made that new signing, haven't they? That Zabato, the striker, yeah. I don't know if he'll play. But I think for me, it's just they, they just can't finish their own chances. And we really haven't had that many. So it's, it's a little bit different. But um, we looked much more solid in defence against Man City than we did against either Crystal Palace or Forest. So hopefully that, that might be a good a good sort of starting point for us and, and hopefully we can um, we can put a couple away put away a couple of chances if we get them. Yeah, fingers crossed for that. You'll be certainly whirled on by the red half of Merseyside, as I say. But Anna, thank you very much for your time. Now I robbed you of the chance to have a go at Liverpool, but I won't do the same with Everton, Jim. Um they were staring down both <laughs> barrels. Uh even beyond the Premier League, uh, last night, um I actually turned it off when they were one nil down to Doncaster because I thought I'm not even sure I'm going to still enjoy this anymore. <laughs> but the cavalry came, but they got their goals. And obviously there's three new forwards or relatively new forwards in the club who a lot of people are going to be hanging their hat on. Um, have you seen much of them? And do you think that that hat has got any chance of staying on there? Well, every time the rap asks me about Everton, <laughs> I, I say something suitably negative, which is based on fact and, you know, opinion. Say and something good, Right, so I think Sean Dyche is probably uh, not only a handsome man, but also the best manager in Europe. Um, uh, I said this before, and I want to reiterate it. When Everton appointed Dyche, he had a a points per game expected of 1.1, and every manager, I think, up to Martinez, had a 1.3, right? So they'd appointed a manager with with, with a lower expected points ratio in the Premier League than they were than they were already they'd already got. Now I've spoken to Blues who've watched the games, right? And I believe the chances they're creating way more chances than they were last season. So many. Right? Right? And then they're sitting around and the place gets quieter and quieter and quieter because I think for Blues everywhere, particularly season ticket holders, they are mindful now that they don't want to fall into that bitter thing mm. where where they just immediately jump on the backs and they get get on them. So they're being patient and they're trusting the process. But they're sitting around, and this is what, what a couple of blues were saying to me last night, they're watching it and they're watching all these chances not taken. They go, you know what's going to happen in a minute, don't you? You know what's going to happen in a minute. You know what's going to happen. <laughs> and, and, then course, and then, hell's bells if it doesn't happen in a minute. You know? Now, they got absolutely battered at Villa, right? Mm. They, they, were, they were rubbish at Villa. Right, but then Villa was smarting from the Newcastle performance, so they were expecting um, a response. And I think Villa, I think Villa will do well this season. Yeah, their results since have kind of put that in context. I think absolutely. For Everton, I don't really see what has changed entirely. They've signed, they've obviously signed Dan Juma, and they brought in Beto as well. Um, but 
unless one of them starts scoring goals very, very quickly, right, this is going to feel like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And the, the problem for Everton is... I the appointment of Dykes last season was clearly designed to get them up, keep them up, sorry, or at the very least, if they did go down, get them up, get them back up quickly. They find themselves almost in Groundhog Day, mm-hmm. and I don't know where they go from here because you 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 hear you know, mutterings that they that the financial situation in the background is 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 bad if this deal for instance to, for a woby going to fulham goes through right that again feels like sacrificing one player to pay for another because yeah. a not a striker mm-hmm. right whereas a numbers wise i think he had I think he was sixth, number six on the assists chart last mm. season. Mm. Ever didn't score any goals, the only, right? The only thing with Awobi, though, is that he did all that under Lampard. Lampard used him centrally. Yeah. Mm. And he, he was doing wide. all right. Which is and what I think Silver as soon will do. As, Dyche, yeah. as soon as Dyche has come in, he's got no interest in playing through the middle. And when you play him out wide, I think he's pretty ineffective. Yeah. So mm. it's, it's one of those that it sort of sounds... a bit of a mad thing to do but then when you break it down what the manager appears to think of him and how much money they're getting as well fundamentally 20 million for a player that you don't seem to want to use in his best you way you paid 35 uh, million for Dice didn't though yeah. Dice didn't. and I think you, the the comparison is more the 25 million they've paid for Beto really yeah. isn't it and I think they are desperate for someone who can come in and start scoring goals because uh, they haven't managed one yet in three Premier League games. Now, Phil, the they team... They don't hear problems, I mean, there's problems, But it is, but just to come in there, Phil, you're absolutely right. Sorry, Mo, just to, just to interrupt, right? The one thing I'll say about Alex Iwobi, right, and I've seen him up close because he, he was... I, I, I was surprised when, when he went but then from Arsenal, but then I was quite pleased with the, with, with the, with the money attached. He's, he's not an old man. No. Right? He's got a ton of Premier League experience and, on paper, he was one of Everton's best players last mm. season. It feels... Just like robbing Peter to mm. pay Paul, and do you know I, what I mean? I, yeah, mm. I, I know what you mean, but I think there's a. I don't think the manager's got much interest in him. It's so also once because you, once um, you're in that position, he's on like a hundred grand the weekend. He hasn't. Yeah, he's been offered a new contract, but he doesn't want to sign it as well. And yeah. he's only got just over a year left, so it's the whole moving back to London thing yeah. as well. So Everton have got to make some sacrifices yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. They have. I can see that, yeah. No. And obviously he wants to stay in the Premier League. Um, so, <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> now, I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah. Obviously. Funny if Fulham get relegated now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Obviously, this is the second week in a row Everton are playing a team with zero points. Um, they couldn't use it to their advantage against Wolves. Um, obviously, Sheffield United are at home uh, they came off a pretty good performance against Man City, even though he got them no points. Uh, Anna wasn't perhaps as uh, bullish as maybe some of us in the room would have liked her to be. How do you feel about their chances? I think this season is the one season where the three teams that are coming up are just going down for me. I just don't see them having the, the quality in both boxes. I don't think, apart from, um, what's his name? Anel Adhudmud, I can't pronounce his name. The centre-back for Sheffield The Bosnian United. lad. Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I can't pronounce his name. I can it's because it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Really good player. <laughs> that's, that's, that's literally what it is, mate. His first name's Anel. I know that anyway. Apart from him, I think Sheffield United are doing what they did when they were in the Premier League last time. They're signing players who probably aren't Premier League level, but if they go down, they'll be really good in the Championship. 
I think they just what spend. What Luton are doing as well, isn't it? Who? What Luton are doing? As yeah, well. Luton are doing exactly the same thing. But you think Burnley are going down as well? Tess? Yeah, hundred percent. I I put up was one of my kind of. Um, you know, when people say, what's kind of your... Sure thing. Yeah, sure thing for the season. And you think that's a style of play thing? Or? I think Burnley won't win an away game till, till April. I think, because I watch Burnley play, and I think Vincent Company, yeah, upcoming manager, he, he does the thing of full-backs inverting, all that kind of stuff. I don't think he's scoring enough goals, and I think because they play a high line, they concede a lot of goals. Like, I can see Tottenham beating them 5-0 on the weekend, but Burnley also having four or five chances, but not having the players to put it away and of course by then all their best players will be at Carrington thanks to you <laughs> <laughs> that too yeah. and I think with Sheffield United it'd be a bit similar they spent I think it was 16 million they signed Cameron, Cameron Archer, Archer. Yeah. again he hasn't played kick the ball for Aston Villa and I, and I kind of see the business that some of these clubs do because it's like do we try and get a proven player spend that money give them high wages and if we get relegated we're, we're in, a, in a bad position because we'll be hard to shift or do we get a young player for more money, less wages, where if we go down, you know, Cameron Archer scored 13, I think it was 11 and 13 for Middlesbrough last season for Carrick. So they, they, they probably see that he's at the level of where he's not good enough for this, but if we play him enough, we can. Yeah. We might be able to sell him. I think Sheffield United, though, in this game against Everton, they'll they'll make it into a championship kind of game. I think it'd be really physical, set pieces. And I think Everton might even lose because Sheffield United will just kind of say, well, we're just going to, you know, get the crowd behind us and we're mm-hmm. just going to take it to you. And I think Everton, the onus will be on Everton as the Premier League team and I don't think that's what Sean Dyche wants. So I think you could see Sheffield United winning 2-1. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we talk about Saturday morning, the lunchtime game being a bit hard one for atmosphere, Phil. But I do think this is one where Sheffield United really know that there could be a massive advantage in their favour to make it a better pit for Everton. Definitely, particularly in the circumstance Everton find themselves in, it's uh, it's sort of the game where Sheffield United will. It almost feels like they're walking a bit of a tightrope in terms of win this and they'll sort of think, "Hang on, we've got a we've got a chance here." But if you lose to a team who's lost three and a genuine relegation rivals, you lose to them at home. You've got to start worrying and thinking the season is looking quite bleak and. They, I mean, there might be a point this season where if they don't win on Saturday, they're thinking about breaking Derby's record. Yeah. Plus, as well, you look at um, you look at the teams who would you would predict are going to finish in the bottom half. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them, whilst you know have ped- pedigree Premier League experience, none of them have, we say the the history or sort of gravitas of Everton. The, the the narrative sort of needs Everton to be down there fighting for survival. Otherwise, it's the sort of the predictable bunch, isn't it? Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I and I think I I kind of agree with with Phil. I think uh, I think Sheffield United win that one. Well, I mean, well, of course they'll lose. Thanks for killing it. Now, obviously, another team who are obviously mentioned are expected to be around there are Luton. Uh, Jim, I'll come back to you on them. Um, a tough night last Friday for them at Stamford Bridge, but this really is the one that they've been waiting for. First home game in the Premier League. Again, it's a Friday night one. They probably feel like they could have come into West Ham in, in slightly worse form because they look like they're flying, 
But they're going to try and use that momentum as much as possible to try and make it a big game for them, aren't they? Absolutely. Firstly, I'd like to just say something about Friday night football in general. I think Friday night football is one of the great inventions um, in, 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 in the English football game. Having spent years as a Tramier Rovers season ticket holder, taking Friday night football away from them was a really, really yeah. bad thing. But I think the fact that it's been brought back by Sky is not I often I give Sky any credit for anything, but I actually think on the, on 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 this I love the Friday night games. I think they're brilliant. Do you know what I mean? And um, and I think it's great for Luton to have this their first game, mm-hmm. you know, under the floodlights. You know, West Ham with the form team coming into it. It's a great opportunity to to maybe get something out of the game because I don't think anybody genuinely believes that West Ham are awesome or anything. You know, um, credit to Moyes. Yeah. He's done. He's. I. I. I think one of the things that Moyes has done, um, his experience has lent in massively to getting a team prepared for that early running, you know. And by doing that, I. I think perhaps they might make a make, might make a couple of additionals. Um. In you know in you know, maybe before maybe before tomorrow, <laughs> um. Ward Prowse makes sense to me. Makes makes a lot of sense that signing. I. I. You know. I was kind of surprised that that someone. Uh, you know, with a bit more, you know, you know, je ne sais quoi might 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 have come in for him. I can understand why they didn't, but it, but it, you know, sometimes the player finds the club, doesn't it? And mm. I think that's a good that that's good for them. Um, but again, this is one of those games where, you know, I'm not entirely sure. You might not see a little bit of Brentford Arsenal about it. You know, when Brentford. You know, came yeah. up and it was the first game, mm. and it just surprises everybody a little bit with it. I mean, don't get me wrong; you're absolutely right. Luton <laughs> are so ill-equipped for a for Premier League survival. We could be looking at a derby, but as a one-off, I'm going to say I don't know. It would be very West Ham to go super and West Ham. win two games that against David West Ham and Chelsea. Yeah, super Moisey. Oh, sorry, against um, Chelsea and Brighton, and then go and lose to Luton, but. We do have to give West Ham some praise, Phil. I think we've been talking about midfielders quite a lot on this show, but the trio of Ward-Prowse, Alcaraz and Mohamed Kudis is arguably the best trio of midfielders any team's brought in, I think, in terms of with the level they're at and what they could do. So they're in a good position to have mitigated the Declan Rice loss and maybe even added a bit. Yeah, I think they've spent the, the money. I think they've done well. They've done... It's hard for a club like West Ham, I think, to spend a hundred million pounds in terms of bringing good value in. You know, you get the money for Declan Rice, you've got a hole in the squad, you've got to fill it. You can't not spend the money, and they have done. I think they have done well with it. I think the Kudus is player who I think a lot of teams would have would have quite liked. Like Champions League, there's Champions League teams who I think would have taken him. I think, I think all three of them are Champions League level. Maybe not War Prowse, yeah. but he could still play at that <laughs> level. He could do a job for a good team. Yeah, he could do. And I think it's quite surprising that Alvarez went from Ajax. Alvarez and Kudus both left Ajax to go and play at West Ham. It probably shows the, the lifestyle, the wage, and probably... I mean, West Ham won the European trophy Yeah, last I was going to say... Year. But you know, Ward Prowse, is a, he's a Sidwell, he's a Sidwell, um, a Scotty Parker type player, isn't he? Right, but I'm glad Ward Prowse went to West Ham and not to one of those clubs yeah, yeah, because yeah. he'd have bench warmed yeah. Yeah, for the rest yeah. of his career. Whereas actually, he's demonstrated I want to play, you know, and I think he'll be a folk hero there. He's going to be a key player. He'll probably play every game. And West Ham being, you know, 
creating lots of chances, scoring lots of goals from set pieces. They've just signed probably the the best kind of offensive weapon yeah. in War Prowls. But when I was looking at, I said it from when I was on the show the first game of the season before West Ham had made any signings. I looked at the team and I said, this team is better than half of the teams in in the league without any signings. And then you add those three to it. I know they're, they're in Europe this season, but they could, again, finish in the top 10 and have a, a deep run in in, the, mm-hmm. in Europe, especially when you think that you know the, the signings they've made are almost signings, maybe not War Prowse because of his age, but if they had one good season, they could sell them for double the amount, <laughs> which is crazy to think when you spent 35 million and 38 million on Kudus and Alvarez. Do you know what? Do you know what? As well, I want to say that I am, it's probably not a popular um, opinion in these parts, but I'm super proud of David Moyes' achievements at West Ham. He's done so well. Do you yes. know what I mean? I'm super, mm. super proud of them because, not, apart from anything else, it just kind of reaffirms that, you know, he may not have been the right place at the right time for United, but United moved way too quickly away from him. Mm. And and not that quick, actually, you know, uh, <laughs> actually, actually, if you give it, if you know, if you give the manager the right, the right, uh, the, those two things fit, and the and the Conference League win when it gets to when it gets to that time in the season when you know there's good. Good teams finishing in finals all over the place. It's still a European final, and they won it, man. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I mean, proud is probably not the word I'd use. Impressed. Um, <laughs> I still feel like he might be taking a bit of a risk asking Mikel Antonio to be his main striker. But we've they've tried sh- and consistently failed at signing strikers. I know. I know. It's impressive what they've done. There is still time uh, in the For window. About fifteen years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of strikers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that is a tale of the right oldest back. time. He was a right back, and he's now the top scorer in the Premier League. I've got no love for West Ham, man. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's not like I'm 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 into the Hammers or anything. I just think sometimes if you love football, and we all love football, you look at it and go, moisey has been around forever, you know, and and sooner or later, good ma- good men deserve a little bit of um, recognition for their, for what they bring to the game, and I think play you know fair play to him. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, it looks like we, before we sign off, we have got one last moment. Phil, hit me with it. Uh, Liverpool have reached agreement with Bayern Munich to sign Ryan Gravenberch, which, ah. given this, I presume, is going out tomorrow. You will hear more of that on various other shows, I imagine, Josh. Is it going out tonight? Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Check that out. Uh, and that's a great way to kind of round this show up. We've been breaking exclusives all the way through <laughs> and having a lot of fun while doing it. Tessa, Jim, Phil, thank you so much. And thank you to all for listening. Podcast Network.